0: I want to impress upon people how desperate these industries are for people that can do anything. You know, I know plumbers, pipefitters that make an excess of $200,000 a year. There's so much opportunity out here. There's more work right now than there are people to do it. Like in my city, Tampa, the biggest struggle that I face on a daily basis is not how complex is this problem, it's how am I going to find the labor necessary to correct this thing.
1: There are no rules. No rules. You're listening to Degree Free on the Degree Free Network, where we talk about how to teach yourself, get work, and make money. No degree needed. Here are your hosts, Ryan and Hannah Maruyama. Maruyama. Aloha, folks, and welcome back to Degree Free, where we teach you how to get hired without a college degree. I'm your host, Ryan Maruyama. Before we get into today's episode, if you are trying to change jobs and get into a different career and you don't know where to start, you can sign up for our free community where we have free courses like the seven day Get Hired Challenge and the five degree free pathways course that are going to teach you how to get hired all without a college degree, you can go to degreefree.co forward slash network and sign up for the degree free network And the two courses are in there. The best part about it all is that in the degree free network, you are going to be able to network with other like-minded degree free people, just like yourself that are trying to change their lives by changing their work. Once again, go to degreefree.co forward slash network to sign up. And if you would like to sign up for a free weekly newsletter that has different degree free jobs, how to get hired without a college degree and different things that Hannah and I are getting into, then go to degreefree.co forward slash newsletter and sign up. For our free weekly newsletter. Now, on to my guest. Today, I am having a conversation with Matt Walters, a technology solutions engineer. I am super excited for you to hear this episode. We go over his current job, what his current job looks like, and how he got to where he is by working his way up from pool technician, HVAC technician, all the way up to a six figure paid engineer. We talk about how to learn and how to unlearn the things that you were taught in school and so much more. If you would like to connect with Matt Walters and follow along on his career, then you can do so on LinkedIn. Links to his LinkedIn will be at degreefree.co forward slash podcast as well as links to everything else that we talk about on this episode. And without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Matt Walters. Aloha folks and welcome back to degree free. I am super excited to have on today's guest, Matt Walters. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. My pleasure. I am really looking forward to this conversation because I honestly have no idea what you do. It's not for lack of preparation. I have been on your LinkedIn. I have looked at the companies that you've worked for, and I've Googled every single title that you've had. It's not for lack of preparation. It's just like, I have no idea. And so I think I'm a pretty good proxy for the people that listen to this podcast. If I have no idea what you do, I think there's a really good chance that other people don't know about it as well one of the things that i really wanted to key in and hopefully we could start there is your progression at least on your linkedin and i know that people people put on people's linkedin isn't the full story there could be a couple of different jobs here and there but i loved it because at the very beginning of your linkedin profile the very first job that you have on there is a pool technician i'm still i'm still there like i care i know what that is or at least i think i know what that is And then you have HVAC or HVAC tech one and two still still there. And then we start getting into like building engineer. I know what that is sort of without having to go to Google, but then from there, it pretty much lost me. And now you are a technology solutions engineer. I would really love to start with what is a technology solutions engineer?
0: Yeah, actually, before that, I, I'd like it if we could define that term engineer first. I think that's a good start, because if I say I'm a degree-free engineer, depending on who you ask, a lot of people are going to say, well, that's not possible. You're not a real engineer. I get that a lot, and uh, it doesn't really phase me at all, but basically where that, where that comes from is mostly licensed engineers, professional engineers, PEs is a certification. I think there might be two states in the U.S., but pretty much every state, you have to have an accredited university degree to achieve that threshold. And most PEs would say that, you know, that is the threshold to be a real engineer. You know, the skills required to be an engineer change over time. And with the exponential growth of technology in the world, you know, the the skills are changing rapidly just by the fact that the demand for engineers is so high. There are certain types of jobs and sectors where you don't need a degree. And I think it is appropriate to call yourself an engineer, even if that's really from your title and not your educational background there's a hierarchy of course of of difficulty of roles a physicist might look down on an electrical engineer who would look down on a mechanical engineer who would look down on a stationary engineer who would look down on a building engineer right so the next highest guy up is going to say well like i said an electrical engineer might look at a mechanical engineer and say, like yeah he's barely an engineer you know because my job's harder than his and that's not all of them of course it's just kind of the the uh, generalization the stigma but in reality society We give this term engineer to people who solve sufficiently complex problems and just find solutions to every industry that makes life easier. I look at it as more of a competence level and complexity thing than a credential
1: thing. I am very happy that we started here, even though that wasn't my plan. I actually had that question written down because you're the first degree-free non-software engineer that we've had on here. So I really wanted to define that term. So thank you for starting there. Defining terms again, what is the PE engineer? What is that? What is that license?
0: Sure. So that's professional engineer. The qualification for what that is depends, varies by state. So you get a professional engineer license for whatever state you're operating in, and you may need multiple in some states. I think it depends. If one's more strict, you're probably going to need the more strict one. There's varying degree experience requirement thresholds. So if you like, if you have a, a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering the pe experience requirement is greater if you have a master's phd it's less so it's it's typically some level of degree followed by some years of experience working under a currently licensed professional engineer and certain types of experience thresholds like it might be design engineering you know whatever type of engineering that is and then once you get all that you are then qualified to take the test prior to that you can take an eit test engineer in training after you have that once you surpass the threshold, you get your PE license. And then that needs to be maintained as well. So you're required to submit documented hours of certain types of learning. I can't remember the the term for the credits, but it's it's similar to college credits. And that could be gained through certain things like going to an engineering conference and listening to some conference papers or speakers or research papers or something like that.
1: I would love to get your opinion on it. At what point do you call yourself an engineer and can you hold your head up high? And to give some context behind that question offline, I was talking to a software engineer And that is one of the number one things that he gets. And I I think a lot of software engineers that, that get that is they're like, well, you're not an actual engineer. And then I thought about that. I was just like, well, what is the threshold for one to call themselves an engineer? As a lay person, as somebody that doesn't know anything about anything, it seems to me that engineers are people that solve problems, right? They solve complex problems. And there's a lot of design and infrastructure that go into executing the solution to that problem. And so I don't really know what that threshold is. I would love to know what that threshold to call yourself an engineer is.
0: Yeah. I and mean, it's a very difficult and somewhat subjective question, right? Because as I said, there's obviously thresholds, you know, somebody working on Elon Starship at SpaceX as a mechanical engineer is potentially, depending on what exactly they're working on, significantly more qualified than someone you know, just designing a mechanical system in like a commercial building. But they're both engineers, right? Of course, there's a hierarchy within that. And as far as defining a minimum threshold, that's a pretty difficult thing. And as I progress in my career, in regards to my LinkedIn positions, those HVAC tech positions, the the technical job title at that place was HVAC engineer one, because, you know, just in within that sector, they call their staff engineers for whatever reason. And Looking back, I didn't feel it was appropriate for that role I was playing to be called an engineer. But at the same time, two people can be in the same role and one of them can take it vastly deeper and farther than, than another person. So, like I've met professional, I've not many, because professional engineer is is generally a pretty good standard for a mark of competence. But I've met a handful that were, quite frankly, an embarrassment to the title. So, you know, it it's really depends on the person.
1: What I just find so interesting about the thing is that it's pretty much exactly what you were talking about, right? That HVAC role that you had, it was HVAC engineer one. I used to be a firefighter in a previous life. And when you get up to actually running the truck, when you're the person that's driving it, at least in my department, they are engineers. We called that like, you're my engineer. And really that just means you're a driver. And that means that you are in charge of pumping and the hydraulics of the truck. And, and then ob- if you're on a ladder operating all the hydraulics of that, c- that, those types of things, but does that really qualify you as an engineer? I'm not sure. But then like, I have a really good friend who doesn't have a PE license, who is working in manufacturing, who is a chemical engineer by degree, who is a process engineer by title now, but he does not have a PE. So I find it interesting when there are positions that are gate kept and uncovering why we think those are gate kept by, you know, either the industry or by college or just by our own stigmas and our, our own thoughts.
0: Well, you know, something along those lines, I work with a lot of degreed engineers. Most of the engineers I work with are, are degreed. And when I ask them related to my specific industry, it's like, cause I'd like to know what. Um, what class, what course in college do you take that is most useful to your job now? And the majority of the time the answer is not a single one, not a single one. Sometimes it's thermodynamics, like some base fundamentals course. that gave me a, a head start. Again, as as technology exponentially grows, the roles that you do as an engineer get broader and sort of more diffused, and there's more in a, there's more to integrate. and we start getting more and more specialties. And education really can't keep up with all these specialties. It's just, you can't. It's too specific. You'd have to have too many different courses. So really, at least in my industry, and I'm sure that for some industries, college is extremely relevant. Like I would imagine a computer science degree is hyper relevant to what you're immediately doing out the gate. But for the industry that I'm in, a degree does not prepare you to be an engineer. It is merely a good indicator that you have the competence level to be one.
1: Yeah. Totally. As far as what you do now and the technology solutions engineer, can we circle back and talk about what that role is? Sure. It is
0: pretty heavy into software. I wouldn't call myself a software engineer because I'm not really coding per se, but it's sort of a, a blend. Within my industry, controls engineers are sort of few and far between, especially those that have a background in operations and stationary engineering, like I do. Essentially, what I do is I build and program control strategies for building mechanical systems on a commercial level. That can mean fire systems, that can mean lighting, that can mean HVAC, electrical, plumbing. Basically, if you look at the building as a robot, it's basically robotics, but inside of a building. Like I've got this little robot arm here back on my desk. The same types of signals I would use to control something like that in a process machine factory are this exact same stuff I would use in a building are the exact same things I might use on a fighter jet to control the control surfaces that, you know, balance yaw, pitch and roll. Um, so it's, it's really sort of robotics, but for building mechanical level systems.
1: Is the application that you are specifically doing, is that for buildings? Like you were talking about things that were, you're talking about a building.
0: Hospitals, data centers, uh, schools. I mean, really any, for me, I I do commercial. I mean, it's barely starting to get into residential because it's, the complexity is, you know, we can get there another time, but. Commercial buildings. I've done a lot of K through 12 schools. Of course, higher ed has it too. I've done several hospitals. I've done a couple data centers with Microsoft. And all of those control strategies and type of equipment that we're controlling are are very different. And there's different levels of precision within there as well. Right. You know, I mentioned fighter jets earlier. Of course, that's going to be a significantly higher level of precision than even what I'm doing. So again, there's a hierarchy in there.
1: So robotics, the application, like, let's talk about schools for a second. Is that going to be like controlling the alarm system? Is that going to be turning the lights off at a certain time, like automation? Or, I mean, is that too general?
0: No, no, that's, it's, it's automation. I mean, again, there's a hierarchy. If you imagine just your thermostat in your home and when your temperature gets above a certain set point, you know, the thermostat's going to switch over a relay, which calls for your fan and cooling system to run that's even like at a very low level automation of some sort it's it's this device that's programmed to perform a f- certain function based off of its process variables that it, or whatever inputs it's reading from the, its environment
1: got it and I usually save this question for later but I would love to know now like what is a day-to-day of that look like
0: so it, you know in my current role it's it's a lot of putting out fires so to speak we're relatively new with the customer we're currently working with it's a It's one of the largest school districts in the country down here in Florida. And we we are sort of trying to get them back to a state of consistent and smooth operation and maintenance of their entire infrastructure. You know, there's a huge lack of, and we'll get more into this later, but a big lack of skilled labor in this country. And our infrastructure within the country is slowly becoming more dilapidated over time just because we're losing all these people that are retiring. And, you know, kids these days really aren't being motivated to step in. So we're sort of here to help this customer manage their infrastructure and get it to a place where it's operating as it should be, what we call retro commissioning. So let me explain retro commissioning for a minute. When a building is designed by an architect, mechanical engineer, electrical engineer, there's what we call design intent. There was a vision that that architect or mechanical or whatever engineer had in mind of how this building should live and breathe. There's efficiency standards and energy codes and and different things that they're trying to achieve. And over time, you've got to think most of the sort of facility operators or technicians that are in that, or sometimes it's literally just a facility manager, like a, a janitor sometimes, depending on what building that's in that building. They don't typically know even know what the freight design intent is. You have to imagine when a problem arises, something in the system breaks, they're going to do whatever they think is best to make it work for this space. And oftentimes it's the wrong thing to do. It's not really, it's maybe addressing a symptom and not the root cause. So over 20 years of just throwing different parts or locking things in certain positions or just manipulation by a a local operator of a system, the system is completely out of balance and very inefficient and just barely working or not working at all. So retro commissioning is the state of looking at the existing system and taking it back to design intent. And oftentimes improving upon that design intent. You know, down here in Florida, well, a big part of my job is to make these existing systems more efficient because there's a big decarbonization, green, renewable energy push throughout the whole country. And Florida is really, relative to other states, very far behind with its energy enforcement of energy efficiency standards. So there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. And we're so not only do we bring it back to design intent, but we improve upon that intent.
1: So with retro commissioning and going back to the original design intent, you were talking about, let's just say this janitor over 20 years and multiple people come in and fill this role. They had the original design intent, but then they found this workaround for for whatever it was. And then this next person came in and did this other workaround and it got away from the original design intent so far. Is it part of your job? So obviously it's your job to get it back to design intent, but do you also look at the, what those actions were that those people did and try to design a solution going forward so that people don't do that or to make maybe the system more intuitive or to make it easier to use?
0: That's a great question. So in in a new construction phase, it's a lot more on site and there's a lot to unpack there, so I'll hold off on that for a minute. But right now in retro commissioning, the existing systems are there and I have access to all of the data that they're telling me. So basically what I can do from my home is just look at a giant list of numbers. Um, and that's temperatures, pressures, flows, etc. And it tells me how the system is behaving, how it's breathing and living. And I sort of just look at that system and say, like, is this optimal? One, is it, is it optimal for the people that are occupying the building? Is this going to keep them comfortable? Is it going to keep them healthy, good air quality? Two, is Is it optimal for the longevity of the equipment? I mean, some of these pieces of equipment we're controlling cost millions of dollars. And, you know, shortening the life, if you cut the life of that, if it's operating improperly, you could cut the life of that equipment significantly in half, um, sometimes down to 25% if it's bad enough. So is it operating in a way that's efficient for the equipment itself and, and optimal, and then is it operating efficiently? Are we wasting energy by the way we're running the system as a whole? It's not just individual pieces of equipment. it's They're all part of a large system. So if this piece of equipment isn't optimal, then it's going to make this piece and these downstream pieces also operate suboptimally. So I'm looking at all that data and interpreting that data to be a current operating state of the system, then saying, here's where I am, where do I need to be? And Then I'm looking at how can I get there? Now, through that investigation, I can typically determine where I might have a mechanical failure or a a physical issue with the system. And I'll do two things. Either I can diagnose exactly what's wrong and I'll tell the customer, like, hey, you need to create a, a work order for a certain vendor to go fix this physical deficiency. Sometimes there are deficiencies that cross the boundary of physical and controls. And it's a lot of finger pointing. Controls guys don't understand mechanical systems. Mechanical system guys don't understand control systems. So there's there's some gap here. And again, as technology's growing and more integration, things are becoming integrated into these systems, that, that gap is getting wider. I mean, there's some issues where customers are having to call out three or four vendors to fix a system because they all don't understand. They're all pointing fingers and nobody. So I'm kind of the guy that when I go out to site, it's because there's finger pointing and I need to decide what what the actual problem is. In my current role, that's, it's pretty rare in my, in my previous role, when I was in Denver, I was almost exclusively on site, maybe 10% remote if I was building a program for a system.
1: So it seems like there is a lot of troubleshooting. There's a lot of looking at data, like you were saying, uh, charts, diagrams, I'm sure maybe databases like Excel, Excel, I'm assuming the, what are some of the qualities that you would need to succeed in a career like this, because majority of the audience that's listening to this, or all of the audience that's listening to this, they are trying to vet different careers. They are in a career that's seemingly unrelated right now, whether or not they are serving tables or a cashier at a supermarket. they're listening to this, and they're just like, "Well, that sounds good for me but I don't know exactly what I would need to look like or what my qualities need to be to do that job. And I would love to get into what you think great qualities would be.
0: Yeah, it, it might be easier to start with, with how I got here. I did do some college. I do have some college experience. After high school, my initial plan was to go to community college because I have ADHD. I'm a heavy procrastinator. I was like, my, I need to ease into this college thing. You know, I don't want to get a big loan and just goof it up. But my father at the time who, you know, was graduate from Vanderbilt, you know, pretty big on college and he's like if you don't go to university immediately, I'm not helping with any of your school payments. So I was like, I guess I'm going to university. Well, as a procrastinator, I didn't like doing homework and at the same time my father was was sick. He had a Lou Luguer, Gehrig's disease. I don't know if you're familiar with Stephen Hawking. It's the same the same illness there, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So there was a frequent need and luckily my college was nearby. I was going to Dallas Baptist University and there was a frequent need for me to be at home and help take care of my father as he was going into end of life and it was terminal disease so there's you know there was an expectation that he was eventually going to pass you just didn't really know when it wasn't an infrequent occurrence that i would get a, a phone call at school and my mother would say hey i think he's about to go like you need to get home and say your goodbyes or whatever and that happened multiple times so that kind of made school very difficult and keeping up with with all of that and eventually i was going in for uh, environmental science was my initial major but my third semester i kicked out for academic probation because my grades are really bad. I honestly just thought like I was a total failure. You know, like I had failed at life, that I was just gonna be totally miserable. Like school was so easy, everybody else is doing it, and I just can't hack it. So I I planned to get a job to pay my way through community college and try to finish at, at least an associate's degree or something. So I got this job I was able to get was this job at the Gaylord Texan Resort and Convention Center in Grapevine, Texas, as a pool technician. Uh, making $10 an hour. That job was, it's the most fun job I've had to date. I just didn't quite pay enough for me to make a living. But essentially, the Gaylord is a really unique environment. I'm really appreciative that I was able to get that job because I don't know if you've ever been to a Gaylord resort, but they're these, they have these, it's a big resort and convention center. This one's 5 million square feet. So it's huge. They have these massive atriums that are just you know big indoor environment where plants grow. They've got these big rivers flowing through them. They've got fountains everywhere. They've got water parks. So as a pool tech, I was responsible for pretty much any non-processed hydronic system. So that includes all the rivers, all the fountains, all of the water park equipment. And some of that can get pretty technical. And in some of the rivers we even have like living fish, so we would work on unique equipment like ozone generators or UV systems. And just some really interesting stuff. And through my time doing that, the person who managed the pools also managed the HVAC side of the house in the central utility plant. So I would sort of, in my spare time, cross-train. I would carry their tools. I would do all the worst jobs that they didn't want to do to sort of just get my foot in there, like, teach me what you know, because I need to make more than $10 an hour, right? (laughs) So... Eventually, I achieved this position, HVAC Tech 1, on on Third Shift. So that was 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. A resort is a 24-7 facility. Like, things have to stay running. And Third Shift is typically the place where either you send the upstarts or the, I don't want to say the the rejects, but like, you know, Third Shift's where the people that you don't really maybe want to be around too often typically go or the people that are just less experienced. So it's all level one people that are on Third Shift. Nobody really knows that much more than anyone else. So there's really nobody to teach from, but you still have this big 8,000 ton. It's a metric of cooling. Central utility plant, 100 million plus BTU boiler plant with high pressure steam application. There's a laundry, large laundry facility. It's kind of scary as a person who'd ever seen it because I mean, a lot of this equipment's like way bigger than I am. It's making loud noises. I mean, some of these pumps when they would start would shake the floor, just powerful stuff. And, you know, now I'm responsible for making sure this stuff does not shut down. And if it does, I have to take care of it. And I have no idea what I'm doing. So the company I was working for at the time, it was Marriott Hotels, who runs that business. And thankfully, my main job was preventative maintenance of equipment. So like, let's say an air handler needs maintenance. I would go in, I, would cl- I started out with just cleaning it. Or if it was broken, I would maybe try to fix it. And my company, when I was all caught up in my maintenance, allowed me the freedom to educate myself on the clock. So they said, hey, if you're caught up on your work and you want to teach yourself to be a better technician or teach yourself to be an engineer as long as it's job relevant, we're going to give you that time, which was amazing. And I mentioned before the, the diversity and scale of equipment at a Gaylord is very unusual. It's stuff you would normally find in critical environments, but with non-critical consequences. Because in something like a hospital, for example, if like you might have equipment feeding an operating room, and if it goes offline, like, that's a big deal. You know, you're getting woken up at 3 a.m. You, you better not go offline in the first place. But versus a hotel, like somebody's uncomfortable, you know, not that big of a deal. I mean, you could lose a couple million dollars of process cooling if it's like a walk-in fridge and you have all these really expensive meats or something. But typically it's, you know, it's a big deal to me at the time because it's my job. But in retrospect, it's equipment that is is pretty complex with l- little consequences. So you get the freedom to push buttons you normally wouldn't get to push outside of that kind of an environment and the ability to couple practical applications of my work with at the same time getting that textbook education was just so invaluable there's a program that mit and harvard have a joint run on called edx and i used to use take these edx courses it's basically it's the same like thermodynamics, for example, is one of the ones I took, a course that you would get in the college, but your papers aren't graded. There's no one checking your work. There's no credential earned at the end of it. You, They tell you what textbook to get if you want to get it. You can watch all the lectures. You can do assignments, but there's just no checking up on it. So it's different learning resources like that and Schneider Electric Energy University and several other things I would use to educate myself. And even... Just walking around the central plant or the building, I would see these equipment, I'm like, I don't know what that thing is. I'm gonna spend the next two weeks learning everything I can about that until I know it like the back of my hand. And because I didn't want there to be anything that happened on that shift that I couldn't handle. After about a year and a half of doing that, I transitioned to second shift as sort of like a lead tech, overseeing all of the mechanical electrical plumbing systems for the building. That was a lot of running customer calls, making sure the central plant was operating. And we were adding on an expansion to the Gaylord. I think it was hundred thousand square feet of meeting space and 310 guest rooms or something. And during that process, the owner hired a commissioning engineer to come and commission the new facility. And this guy is the most intelligent engineer I've ever worked with. And our director of engineering was so impressed with him that he paid him a substantial amount of money to stay back an extra two days every time he flew out here to teach us uh, how to recommission our existing building. And this might be just two days a week, a month. So, and, and he was such a good teacher. And so me and one or two other people would just follow him and he would take us through these problems and show us how to utilize data. And it's it's so much simpler than it appears from the outside once you get the hang of it. You just can't believe it could be that simple all along. You just didn't see it. And there's really a, a way of thinking as an engineer that you have to develop. And honestly, it's unlearning the way you were taught to think in, in school. Because I think the K-12 system, without going too far down a rabbit hole, is severely deficient in teaching kids to memorize things instead of how to properly think about a problem. I mean, I think largely humans are not, at least in this country, not very good at thinking. So after spending all this time with this engineer, the Gaylord Rockies was going to open up in 2018. And the Gaylord Rockies was a new Gaylord Hotel in Denver, Colorado. And it was, at the time, the largest construction project in the U.S., And they did not hire a commission team initially to commission that building. Listen, if you tell contractors that no one's gonna QA, QC their work, they're gonna cut corners. And it's not out of maliciousness. It's just, there's not enough people to do this work. They have deadline, they have to meet. And they probably even intend to go back and fix it after the deadline is met. So I knew that in my mind. And I said, that building is gonna potentially be a real piece of work. And I would love to be the guy that gets to work on it. So I put my name in the hat. I wanted to go up there. But even as a facility engineer, I didn't have many credentials because I was never really worried. about it. I had an EPA certification for refrigerant, but I called the chief engineer who was going to be in charge of that building. And I was like, I'd love a job. And he's like, well, I don't really think you have, I told him the minimum amount of money I needed to move. He's like, I don't think you have the experience or credentials necessary to take this job. And he's like, but I'll give you a position on third shift. So I'm like, oh, great. Back to third shift.
1: Just jumping in here. What was that minimum amount of money for you to move? It was
0: $26 an hour that I was looking for. And uh, that, was the, that was the starting for their level three building engineers. So I was like, okay, I understand, respect, you don't know me. I got to get my foot in the door. I respect that. So I took it and I, I found an apartment that was really close by so that I could drive. I could be there in 10 minutes if something bad happened. And as it turned out, I was one of the only people on that entire facility operations team who had really ever operated a building of that scale or equipment of that magnitude. So I was kind of the immediate subject matter expert which to me was a scary thing. Even now, sometimes I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) You know, like who really knows what they're doing? But, you know, when you're forced to do everything, you figure out how to do everything. So it was a lot of trial by fire. And sure enough, that building had so many opportunities for improvement that it really allowed me to flex my skill. And kudos to the management team there. They eventually recognized my abilities and and really gave me the freedom to adjust that and, and sort of play with that building And try to improve it they they really gave me the freedom to do that which is very rare for a like a chief building engineer to allow a mechanic to really make adjustments to the existing especially a new system and when i first got there it wasn't even done being built i mean we didn't even have a control system in place so i had to create sops for the entire team on how to operate the system in hand manually because the automation system wasn't in place the first day we opened january 1st we had a boiler burst One of our 20 million BTUs boilers burst in the plant. It was the only one we had working. And, you know, i walked in the plant. There's four inches of water gushing out of this water tube boiler. And I had to hotwire these other boilers to run because they weren't even started up yet, really, you know, just to keep the building heat going. And there's all these sort of issues you run into and design improvements that I would try to make. And I really use that facility as a tool to teach myself to be like a next level of engineer. And I believe the complexity of the issues that I was working on was sufficient to call myself a title engineer, even if it was only at like a lower level. And it was really, really the same position. I just got moved to first shift, but it's, you know, stationary engineer is a, is a title that you give to people who operate equipment of a sufficient capacity. And it's a position that comes with a license in Denver. And typically there's a five-year experience threshold. There's a big test you have to take. You study for it to, to give that license. You have to operate... I can't remember the exact specifications, but it's refrigerant equipment, hot water equipment and high pressure steam equipment of a certain capacity for a certain amount of years, certain types of projects and documented progressive over time. So and really the whole time I was kind of doing that role. But and and while I was trying to commission that building by myself as a facility operator, I ended up impressing some people at the automation company that installed that system. And. They so they hired me. They said, Hey, you know, we'd love to give you a job if you're if you're up for it. And I was game because I was really reaching a ceiling at Marriott. And I'm trying to constantly feed my curiosity. So um, I got recruited by this this company to the automation and called Johnson Controls. And they're one of the three biggest names in the in building automation around the globe. So they're some of the best to ever do it. So I was really excited about that and a little out of my depth because I'd never done new construction, you know. And this is my first time as like what i thought was a real engineer i was like okay this is my first job where i'm like actually an engineer and not just some facility well day three you know this is kind of funny that huge list of issues commissioning issues i made for them to work on they gave it back to me and said go fix it all (laughs) as sort of i don't know if that was revenge or just like a trial run to see if i could really hack it so i worked on that for a while and after about three months of onboarding working with different healthcare facilities i i got a sort of a, a job as the primary engineer on uc health for their Trey Creek Medical Center. The day I set foot on the site, we were like six months behind schedule. And then a few days later, COVID hits. And when, as soon as COVID hit, hospitals were like, we need these beds yesterday. Like, you need to be done now. And due to the labor shortage, I was really just kind of thrown to the fire. And it's not just it's COVID, too. There was a huge, you know, I can't really blame. Johnson Controls for all this because COVID was just a hectic time for everyone. And I was really thrown out there with very little support. No project manager initially, just a handful of technicians to help me out and sort of figuring out my way. I'd never done a really full construction project, so I wasn't really even sure how to know what I needed to do next. I just, you know, problem, I'm going to solve it. Problem, I'm going to solve it. Problem, I'm going to solve it without really big picture. So that was a huge trial by fire learning curve. I was working 70 to 90 hours a week for a year trying to get that job done. I mean, it was exhausting. UMass spare time, spare time on my weekends, help out with the Microsoft data centers in Wyoming or uh, some K 12 schools or other hospitals. And after about a year and eight months of that, I was just so exhausted and said, I can't, you know, I don't really want to be in Denver anymore because you know, you can't work 70, 90 hours a week forever. So I missed fishing too, love fishing. And so I, I told myself Hawaii, Texas, or Florida. And this company I'm at now, McKinstry, called me up and said we got a position in Tampa and I was like so you know and uh it's kind of where I am today
1: Perfect perfect thank you for sharing that story that is amazing One question before I get into some of the like picking apart your story or at least highlighting some attributes or things about your story the one thing that I wanted to double click on real quick which was unlearning how you were taught to learn in school. Can we talk a little bit more about that and what you meant by that?
0: Sure. I always say that school really failed me. Of course, I ADHD procrastinator. I can't sit still. And i it was just a struggle for me to absorb education. Now, when I was younger, so my family's moved all around the country for my dad's work. But when I first moved to Florida, Fort Lauderdale, Miami area, um, I got enrolled in private school, Westminster Academy. And it was a much higher standard of what it means to be educated. And I use math as a good example because, you know, they were like, you know, in the real world, they didn't, of course, you'll never have a calculator in your pocket to be able to do math or you won't have scrap paper. So you need to do all math in your head. So I'm like, that makes sense. So, you know, the education there was pretty good and I got real good at that. And then we moved to California and I go to California public school system where doing math in your head is impossible for a human. You're obviously cheating, you know, and it's like if i could never show my work cuz just i'm always a very like see the problem there's the answer but they kind of teach you that that's wrong and that you need to look approach things like this and there's always a correct way to a solution and if you don't use this correct method to get to this solution your solution is invalid no matter how accurate or precise it may be so going into the space of being a technician mechanic engineer when things break i'm always trying to find the exact method by which we are supposed to to fix this thing when really it's problem solution and in between is irrelevant like how you get there doesn't matter now of course you need to get there ethically and within reason of course you're not you're not gonna like duct tape everything but uh, in a pinch, you know, you do what you got to do. And and it took me a long time to get my brain oriented around there's not a correct way to solve every problem. There might be, there's multiple right answers. And there, in some circumstances, might be a best answer. But oftentimes, it's it's marginal. And even if you're looking at the research on a, a spe- specific method of control, for example, it's it's marginal. And in certain circumstances, it's it's just really not clear.
1: I love that because I learned that, Really late in life. I had a very traditional quote unquote background. I'm Japanese. And so my, all the stereotypes, all the, I don't know, whatever you call it, racist stuff against Japanese people about like, oh, you're smart. Go to, go to school, go to college, do math. That's all true it's It's all true. and so that's very typical of how I was I was raised and how I grew up. You needed to be book smart. you needed to be school smart, straight A's, uh, get into college, straight A's, go make a lot of money, you know, finance, doctor or something like that. And so I obviously didn't take that path. and it wasn't until later, But I still held that belief that like school was the way to learn and the way that they teach you to problem solve in school through textbooks and through what these things say, through this structured, rigid methodology and ideology, like that's the way to do it. But then it wasn't until I was exposed to other people with other backgrounds that I really understand, like I'm totally wrong it wasn't until I became a firefighter where I was surrounded by all these people that weren't quote unquote book smarter, school smart, but man, you put these guys on a pump panel and hydraulics just comes to them like that. They totally get it, right? Like they totally understand friction loss. They totally understand elevation. They, they just, they get it. They, they talk, you talk to them about you're pumping into this, uh, you know, I'm getting To technical, not technical for you, but technical for people listening to this. You know, you're pumping into a standpipe, and then you gotta like, how much are we gonna, how much are we gonna pump? How much do I need in anyway? Like all of this stuff, and all of this. I'm good at math. All this stuff is like completely over my head. I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. But it wasn't until my exposure to these people and their way of thinking and their way of problem solving that I understand. Okay, there are different types of intelligence. Around and this sounds really pompous to say because I'm like 28 at the time, but like you know 27 at the time. Like okay, there are different ways, and then you exactly what you were saying. There's a problem, and there's a solution here. How you get to the to that solution doesn't really matter. And firefighting, at least in our department, we had a saying, or people would be like, we would ask, or as a new person, you would ask. Is this how to do it? And somebody would just ask you the question back, look at you and say, Did it work? Right? Like, that's pretty much it. Like, there's two questions Was it safe? Are we still alive? You know what I mean? Like, are we still alive? Second, did it work? If you say yes to both of those things, well, then that's the answer to the problem. I mean, and you could have done that same solution or you could, we could have got to the desired outcome 17,000 different ways, but you did it this way and that's okay. You know,
0: you mentioned different types of intelligence and one of the really like things that people like raise their eyebrow at me that I used to do when I was was at the Gaylord Rockies, that new building, Um, I wanted to know that system, that mechanical system, like the back of my hand, because I knew like anything that happened to that, I had to do crisis mitigation I was responsible for it. And I used to lay underneath these huge machines like on third shift and just put my hands on them and like imagine that i was like the water flowing through the system and through the pumps because like i wanted to know every turn every valve i wanted to know the sound of the system what does it sound like under optimal operation and and if you've ever seen like an operator break like a vapor lock on a pump just that intuitive like he's spinning valves he's listening for things he's watching pressure gauges and just that intuitive knowledge of what's happening inside is just it's some other kind of skill that you can't really teach. Like some of that stuff is just, you have to really live and breathe alongside your system.
1: Totally. And it wasn't until that experience that I really, because obviously, and I'll go back to like what I know about, about the the pump on a fire truck, like there's a classroom portion of it. Like you have to pass some sort of test. It's a standardized test. There's You know, fill in the bubbles stuff. But just because you know those answers or you can do it in that environment, it's completely different in practice as well. Right. And and so, even though I was very good, I'm very good at standardized tests. I'm very good at it. Like, I did it my whole life and I aced it my whole life, but I couldn't do that. But it took me way longer than people who just intuitively, like, yeah. That doesn't sound right. This thing is screaming right now. <laughs> like what are like something's something's wrong. But for me, I would just, I would just, I would just look at it and be like, ah, pressure's Right. Yeah. But your RPMs are like crazy. Like what's going on? Shut it down. You know, <laughs> like, so anyway, it just, uh, I really, really ascribe to what you're saying there. I wanted to circle back to, you know, how we got down your path and talking about your story, which was, you know, the different skills for people that are listening to this. And I love the fact that you gave your backstory. And I kind of wanted to summarize some of those things. And maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong about the qualities that people might need. So I think number one, what you're talking about is just that constant wanting to problem solve, just constantly be learning, constantly be curious those were some things that were highlighted for me about your past and how you got to where you were
0: curiosity is is number one i'd say for me i've always been a kid who's been interested in science and how the world works and you know like back to defining an engineer an engineer is typically someone who finds solutions to problem using the tools of mathematics and science so i've always been really interested in science and seeing some of these principles that i i had learned and were familiar with just come to play in the real world at such a massive scale was just fascinating to me and i wanted to learn how everything in front of me worked like if that was a thing i didn't know what it was like i want to know about it um so curiosity was was absolutely huge and and i again i sort of fell into this whole career by accident you know so that i got that went through college and eventually found a path that i said i don't need a degree for this path and i can make you know six figures without that piece of paper like i said i thought i, I thought I was a failure out of school and and it come to find out, like, I had a real knack for this. Sometimes you really just don't know until you try. So curiosity is huge. Of course, work ethic. I took every minute of overtime I could get, and I did all of the worst jobs that nobody else wanted to do just to learn from them. Because when you first start out, especially in skilled labor and and the trades industries, like, respect is something you must earn because these guys are, are rough. You know, they're really vulgar and just, you know, like... I had to walk uphill both ways type people. You know, there's there's two ways you get respect. One is you have the knowledge and skill to, to back it up. And two is you're uh, willing to put in the work. So obviously when you first start out, you don't have any knowledge or any skill. And so it, you show them that you're willing to put in the work. You're willing to do the dirtiest jobs that nobody else wants to do. They'll give you respect and they'll teach you what they know.
1: One of the things that I love about your story is it really highlights the slow road, I'll say not to say that it was slow that what you did, but you know, if I'm remembering right, I don't have your LinkedIn in front of me, but if I'm remembering right, your pool tech was like 2014. Uh, That was your job at that time. And I think you became an engineer a few years later, and then now you weren't dealing with the automation stuff until a few years later than that, you know? and so. I would like it. If you could talk about the little bit of, you know, taking a slower path or I'm not even sure if you consider it a slower path, but I do, especially when speaking to people nowadays, everybody wants six figure paycheck in the fastest amount possible. I get it. I get it. But sometimes you do have to take a little bit of a slower path or life takes you that way.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Well, I mean, it, it was about since I started working it was just about four years until I became like an engineer or close to maybe maybe five five years about. So it was really not too much longer. And and of course, I'm not in debt, which is to me I feel like the the whole financial literacy at 18 conversation is kind of weird. I'm, student loan debt is definitely a problem, and that is a predatory system, like no doubt about it. But at the same time, I feel like my parents were. Did not teach me any financial literacy whatsoever growing up, and I instinctively knew like that's bad. That's a bad thing. So I don't want that. You know, so getting in there, I was promoted every, you know, twelve to eighteen months. So I was, you know, moving pretty fast the promotions, and every promotion since I start at ten dollars now, you know, I'm getting twenty percent, thirty percent, forty percent promotions uh, all along the way. And and every time I'm looking for a new role, they're like, how much do you make now? I'm using my money with overtime as that sort of leverage, like. Oh, this is my base, you know, so I'm getting all these sort of big raises. And, um, you know, again, once I became an engineer, making six figures, you know, I I didn't have any debt. So I I had good foundation, actually. I was really good at saving money. and I lived at home uh, with my mother for, I think, until I moved to Denver. So I really tried to save as much as I could. I had this rule that when I was a pool tech, any time my checking account got over $1,000 to pay off any credit card, and then whatever's left to five hundred goes into savings. And eventually that increased to like fifteen hundred because my paychecks would be more than a thousand dollars an hour. So and I just consistent with that rule until I left home. So I had a really good, you know, my car would break down, I wasn't worried about it. I had, you know, I had to throw six thousand dollars at it, whatever, no big deal. I really prepared and I think uh, I think I did pretty good.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a predatory system for student loans and debt. Now that's absolutely true. Or at least I, that's my worldview. That is the system that keeps getting perpetuated, but there really is an outsized opportunity for young people to really get ahead. If you don't take on that debt and you go to work instead. And that's one of the main arguments that Hannah and I make about going to work rather than going to college one. I mean, college will take your money at any time. I mean, they're a business you can go back right right now. You could go back to school right now. I can go back to school right now and they'll take my money. It's still good. It's still green. But then at the second part, if you're not going into debt, when you're that young, your finances are literally going the opposite way because the alternative is you get a job and sure the job can just be a pool tech at a resort, right? I mean, who would have thought nine years ago that your pool tech job would lead you to where you are today?
0: And the other thing I'll I'll highlight here is, and we we've briefly touched on la- the labor shortage earlier. And I want to impress upon people how desperate these industries are for people that can do anything. I mean, you know, I know plumbers, pipe fitters that make in excess of two hundred thousand dollars a year, and to be frank some of them aren't very bright so there's so much opportunity out here there's more work right now than there are people to do it like in my city tampa the biggest struggle that i face on a daily basis is not how complex is this problem it's how am i going to find somebody to fix it or how am i going to find the labor necessary to correct this thing because like i look at the system as a whole and i see all these massive lists of like inefficiencies and problems and i'm like I have to like prioritize, okay, well, this is important, but I have to sacrifice my values here because I know there's no chance I'm going to find somebody with enough skill to fix this problem. And I don't have the bandwidth to do it. And there's just such a need and not just for tradespeople, for engineers too. I heard a statistic every year that China is graduating more engineer than the U S actively has engineers. That's insane. If that's even half true, that's like, that's kind of terrifying. The infrastructure in our country is, is crumbling and we're trying to electrify everything. And these grids if, if we meet these 2030 electrical vehicle goals, for example, that the government's trying to like push, we're, our grid's going to need to have twice the power draw that it has now. We're going to have to have like eight terawatts and they can't handle that. It's not even close. I mean, we're, we're on the threshold as it is. There's such a need for these people that you can make really good money really fast, even if you feel like you're not too capable of a person. But I would also argue that, you know, when you're in school, sometimes it's the school's measuring a fish's ability to climb a tree. And you don't really know how competent you are until you get out there and try.
1: You know, as far as not knowing how competent you are until you try. And as far as there being a labor shortage and even an engineering shortage, as you were talking about. So you are listening to this right now. You're listening to this podcast. Let's put ourselves in our listeners shoes. Maybe you are graduating high school soon, or maybe you have a career already. Like like we're talking about a cashier or working in a restaurant or something like that. How can we start? to walk a similar path to what you were doing? Would you just do, go and do exactly what you did before, uh, which is go get like a career or a job in a sort of kind of adjacent industry and see where it takes you? Or is there a more targeted approach?
0: If I had to redo it, I'd probably shoot a little higher for the entry level position just because, you know, I I, w- I didn't have to start at $10 an hour. But again, with curiosity being such a big play, you know, I feel like if I had started as a janitor, I'd I'd have been a chemist, you know, just being constantly asking why and, and looking at the reality situation and saying, how far can I take this situation that I'm in? How can I, I look at every job that I take as a tool to teach me something. I'm not there to make money. I'm there to teach myself a skill. I'm there to teach myself something new. And every environment you're in, there's typically somebody up in that hierarchy that may have an exposition that you're like, I think I'd want that. And you just look at the situation and there's minor skills that you can contribute that you wouldn't think are important um, before you actually know what you're doing. And if you look at, let's just say you're in an office and you're looking at the management structure and you're saying, what is this team lacking? And it could be something as basic as good communication or organization. And you're like, I can put in the effort to fix this communication issue. I can talk to all these people and know what's going on and give a weekly report to this level manager who's the highest position that I can see. And and they might take that and say like, oh, this guy is solving a problem that I have and he's making my life easier. Then you're a standout and get selected for that career path. So it's it's really all about, you know, competence and IQ is a huge vector. But what I would say is that work ethic is the most controllable variable of success that you have. The, The one that's in your immediate control and the things that you can't control, I mean, it's really no use worrying about them. So look at your current situation and say, what is lacking? What can I do to best enhance the quality of life for those around me? And you will become valuable.
1: Love it. I am very privileged in that I get to have these conversations with amazing people like you. And recently I have been trying to figure out like, what are the main threads between Successful people like you, like others, and other successful, you know, degree free people that have gone. I hate the term, I was just about to use it, but I actually hate the term like alternative route because I actually think that being degree free is actually like the route that you should take. I don't think that I actually think that it's the main route and not the alternative, but people that have, you know, bucked against the norm or at least the societal pressure that you need a college degree in order to be successful in your life. And one of the biggest things that I've seen amongst many other things is that curiosity that we talked about before, but further down the line from that is when you take the job, you're taking the job to learn. Obviously you're doing it for the money. You you're not doing it for your health. Like you wouldn't be there for not the money, but It's one of the biggest things that I have seen in other degree-free people and yourself included It's just like, okay, well, instead of thinking about what I can bring to the job, although that's important, especially when you're trying to get hired and things like that, you got to sell yourself to the company. But when you're getting in there, like, what can I learn? What can I take away from this? What skills can I take away from this experience and then make myself more and more valuable going forward. Just an interesting thing that I've been really ruminating on recently, because like I said, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I'm in this position, that I have this platform to talk to amazing people. And I'm like, how can I take some of this and apply it to my own life? You know what I mean? Like, How can I take these things and instead of just telling other people what to do, how can I take these, you know, learnings and internalize it and, and live my life that way. And, and I, I I love it. So thank you so much for taking the time.
0: Yeah. What you're doing is providing value to other people's lives. And I think that's one of the surest paths to success out there.
1: A couple of questions before we go. One, Matt, if people want to follow along with your career, they want to say, hi, what's the best way that I can uh, send? Where's the best place I can send them?
0: Yeah, I'd say probably um, LinkedIn. The URL is, it's linkedin.com slash in slash D Walters.
1: Perfect, perfect. And for everybody listening, I will put that in the show notes, degreefree.co4 slash podcast. Links to that and everything that we talk about there. And my last question for you, Matt, is there any final thoughts that you would like to say? Any closing statements, anything that we haven't already discussed?
0: Don't let anyone or even yourself tell you that just because you didn't do a thing that everyone else is doing that you failed at something. You'll be amazed at what you can really do if you're put in the right environment that that enlivens you and that is interesting to you.
1: Amazing. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time. I hope that you got a lot of value out of that episode with Matt. Once again, if you would like to say hi to Matt, you can connect with him on LinkedIn. Links to his LinkedIn will be at degreefree.co forward slash podcast. And if you haven't already, I definitely suggest signing up for the free degree free network. It is a community for degree free people to come together and help each other get the work they want during there. You can go and sign up for two of the free courses that we have for you. The seven day get hired challenge and the five degree free pathways course. Using those courses, you will be able to figure out what you need to do to make that job change, to make that career change that you've always wanted to do. Also, connect with me on LinkedIn. I am Ryan Maruyama. Once you connect, leave me a note. Let me know that you listened to the episode. Let me know what you like. Let me know what you don't like. And last but not least, if you would like to receive a short weekly email about different degree-free jobs, about how to get hired without a college degree, then go to degreefree.co forward slash newsletter and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. And that's pretty much it for this week, guys. Aloha.